We are going to be in Haggai chapter 2 today, verses 10 through 19. When I started reading through Haggai initially uh, for preaching purposes, I got really excited about this passage, and so I'm really um, very excited to preach it to you today. Remember I said uh, at the beginning of this series in Haggai that as the Lord draws closer to sending His Son, He goes from whispering about Christ to to putting it on a billboard and full-on yelling about the coming of His Son, and it it is just saturated in this text. And so I'm so very excited and happy to be with you today and happy to be in God's Word with you in Haggai chapter 2. I know you just sat down. I'm sorry. Can you stand back up as we read this text together? On the fourth day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does that food then become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and says, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and says, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Now remember, just a real quick jog. This is a prophecy through Haggai, who was prophesying to God's people as they were returning from exile in Babylon. Babylon fell to Persia. Persia had a different philosophy. They let the, then just keeping the people exiled, they let them return and go back to Jerusalem. They, were, they should have immediately began work on a temple to rebuild the temple, but they did not. They kind of threw up some foundations and an altar and so that the sacrifices could somewhat resume, and, uh, and they kind of said, good enough, and they went about their business with their own businesses and own farms and own things, and they did not. And basically embedded in that 
was that there was an apathy towards God about the things of God and about the worship of God. So it, it wasn't so much the structure that was important, uh, except for the fact that it was paradigmatic, it was symbolic of the fact that the people of God were apathetic and looking to themselves to make provision rather than to the Lord their God to make provision for them. So you see that in the first, especially in the first oracle, um, and then the second oracle uh, deals with, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank, good grief. Why, don't I, why am I drawing a blank? Forget it. First oracle deals with this. This one is, is similar to the first oracle in that it is, it'll come to me and I'll say it right in the middle of the sermon, don't worry. I'll say, oh yeah, I do that a lot. I quit caffeine this week, so pray for me, all right? I'm sleeping better, but also not quite as snappy as I usually am. This third oracle is, is very similar to the first, and at first glance, it looks like maybe it's just, it's just Haggai laying it on thick again, but there's much more here as you examine that as well. So that's kind of the timeline, that's the scene setting, uh, and we go into this third oracle of Haggai to the people of God together. It is directed specifically at the priests, so your everyday priests, okay? Not the high priest or the leader that was up, that was the oracle, the first oracle and the last one. But this is directly at the priest, and then also the people were to hear it as well. So have you ever noticed that one's parental concern for germs and sanitation has a direct inverse relationship with the number of kids in a family? As the number of kids goes up, parental concern for cleanliness and sanitation does what? Goes down. My kids... All of them, all five of them, have intentionally, I don't know if it's just a, 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 a mineral deficiency or maybe they were just lacking a certain vitamin that they could find in the soil, but at some point in the lives of every single one of my children, they have taken a giant bite and swallowed dirt. My oldest, when my oldest Samuel first took a little tyke's red plastic shovel and shoved a large bite of dirt into his mouth, we were very concerned. Checking the area for contamination, I was asking myself, have I sprayed Roundup over here in the last calendar year? Should we call poison control? Well, he survived. Maybe that's why he is the way that he is, but he survived. Then Evie came along, my second oldest, and she ate dirt clods once like candy. And my reaction was basically to, you know, do the thing where you're like the finger sweep and the, that's yucky, don't do that. You know, we, we don't eat dirt, but not nearly as much concern. And then by the time Spurgeon came, our third, Amanda once called me in the middle of the afternoon and said, I just caught Spurgeon eating dirt. And I, my reply was, awesome, do we still have to feed him dinner? We all have our standards of clean and unclean. What makes something or someone dirty or untouchable or undesirable? And the Old Testament has specific categories of clean and unclean for the people of Israel, the people of God. That's what a lot of the book of Leviticus is about. 
And then also Deuteronomy, which is the second telling of this law. It has to do with food, hygiene practices, and matters of reverence and worship. It was a constant reminder to the people of God that their God was holy and set apart from them. It distinguished them from the pagan people that lived around them. This was the system and this system whereby they could perform certain rituals and animal sacrifices to become clean. And I'm, that's in scare quotes. They could become clean. This cleanliness, this system, these rituals were a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ in the New Testament. This is all knowledge that's assumed by Haggai as he spoke the third oracle to the people of God upon their return from exile in Babylon. This oracle is addressed to the priests, and he begins by asking them leading questions. If what, so these are the two leading questions. If what is holy touches something unclean, does it make the unclean thing become clean and holy? And the priests, understanding the Levitical law, say, no, it does not. Does a person who is unclean from touching a dead body make other objects or people unclean by touching them? And the Levitical law, they knew it, and the answer was to them, yes. It does make them unclean. We will come back to these very two specific questions in a little while because the life and ministry of Jesus make them very interesting and fascinating that these are the questions that Haggai chose to ask the people as a rhetorical device, even prophetic. The third oracle is, like I said, a reiteration of the first in many ways. And at first glance, it does look like Haggai's just laying it on thick for him. It, almost like the priest would turn to Haggai and be like, look, man, we get it. We're building the temple. We got it. We did wrong. We're doing right. We get it. But he's doing something a little bit more. His audience is different. This time it's the priest. And I, you find that this is the Lord really turning the diamond, right? If, if, if the concept of right worship was a diamond, you know what happens when you turn a diamond? It looks different as you turn it, right? The different facets, and you can see it differently. The light reflects on it differently. But this third oracle is like that first oracle, but it's taking the diamond and it's just turning it slightly and looking at it a little bit differently. And it's a fresh prophetic utterance if we'll take the time to examine it. It's directed at the priest. Haggai compares the pitiful start that they had, that they called the temple for 20 years. He compares it to a dead body. And dead bodies to the Jews were most definitely unclean. And all who touched them were unclean and had to go through purification rituals. Then he tells the priests and the people, this is the reason you have had all the problems on your farms and your businesses for all of those years, because you were a defiled and unclean people. Made so by your apathy and disregard. So the apathy and the disregard, which manifested itself as a half-built temple was the dead body that they were handling that was making them unclean and it was infesting everything else. This is what Haggai is telling to them. And you could be sure of this as well to remind you about the first oracle. Our apathy about the things of God defiles us as well. Remember the statement that I made in that first sermon. Default mode for us as defiled ones is to not prosper. It's to not be prospering. Default mode 
for a Genesis 3 fallen world is thorns and thistles and struggle and sowing without reaping. That's default mode. It is the reaping of the chaos and rebellion in our hearts. And not just in an eternal sense, but even in the everyday material blessings of our lives. So if we are prospering, it is because God is prospering us and holding back the consequences for our destructive reaping in our sinful state. And it was the same thing for these people as well. We ought to repent as the Jews repented, and out of this repentance they began construction which signified a kind of revival amongst them. Then the last verse of the passage that we read, verse 19, says these words, and it's a very pregnant sentence, from this day forward I will, what you? Bless you. From this day forward I will bless you. I want to remind you, here it is, got it. Got it, came back to me. The second oracle was about the temple being built. And remember, the old timers were grumbling about the temple, right? The second oracle of what makes the temple beautiful and worthwhile in its building. They started building this temple, and the old timers were like, well, that's not as pretty as the temple. We remember the one under Solomon. And so they're basically saying, well, it's not even worth building this temple. We're just wasting our time because it's not going to be as pretty. And Haggai came out with a prophecy of what was going to make this temple worthwhile, even if it wasn't as grand as Solomon's temple. What makes it worthwhile is that this temple will see the temple that will never see decay. The walls of Second Temple Jerusalem, the building, will decay. Remember, it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. But those walls saw the one who, would be, who is the temple who would not ever decay. What's his name? Jesus. Why didn't he decay? Because up from the grave, he arose. Make no mistake in thinking that the people of God, by their holy actions, are the cause of all this blessing that God is going to bless them with from this day on forevermore. The cause of this blessing is because God is choosing to recognize their faith that leads to repentance, and then he chooses to bless them in that. They are still defiled and unclean. They are still undeserving. Let's go back to those questions that Haggai asked at the beginning of this oracle and examine those closely. If what is holy touches something common, does it make the uncommon thing holy? Levitical law says no. Does a person who is unclean from touching a dead body make objects unclean by touching them? The answer according to Levitical law is yes. Under the old covenant, the unclean thing had the power to corrupt the clean thing. It had a way of spreading its qualities that a clean thing did not have. The dirty affected the clean. The clean could not transform the dirty. This is still the case in Haggai under Second Temple Jerusalem. So technically, their answers to Haggai are still correct. But, but... 
when the Lord Jesus conducted his ministry throughout the land of Israel, these rules didn't seem to apply to him. Jesus entered into this broken and fallen world, this temple that will never see decay, this third, third temple that will never see decay. He entered in, and everywhere he went, he made things run backwards. For example, he went everywhere touching the unclean ones and the diseased and the leprous, and they were made what? Well and whole and clean. Consider Mark chapter 5, verses 24 through 34. When the woman who was unclean because she had a feminine discharge of blood that would not relent, and according to Levitical law, she was in a constant state of uncleanliness because blood to the Israelites was unclean, especially this kind of blood. Levitical law said so. And this would have, and we not only would it have just, she probably was anemic and sick constantly, but not only that, she could have not full throatedly participated in worship with the people of God because of the Levitical restrictions on unclean people. No one would have been allowed to sit on the same couch as her. And when Jesus passed by her, in the state of distress she found herself in, she thought to herself, if I could only touch him. If I could just touch him. But what's the problem with unclean things touching clean things? She was so desperate. And she believed. She had faith in Christ. That if she could just, she even says it, if I could just brush the hem of his garment. If I could make a diving leap towards him and just get a little, that's all I'll need. And she did it. And for all intents and purposes under Second Temple Judaism, she made him unclean. Except that's not what happened. Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. And why didn't he just keep walking on? I mean, nobody else knew. In fact, when Jesus pointed it out and he said, who touched me, what did they say? Everybody's touching you, bro. Like, there's a thousand people around you. We're all in a crowd. What's the big deal? Why are you stopping us to say who touched you? And he says, no, who touched me? And he stopped the procession and the throng that banged around him, and he made an example of the situation. Everyone would have known this unclean woman because they would have avoided her literally like the plague. And Jesus wanted everyone to clearly perceive what happens to those who have faith in him. And he said to her, your faith has made you well or clean, is another translation of that word. Consider the question of Haggai again. When something clean touches something unclean, does it make the unclean thing become clean? Old Testament, Old Covenant answer, no. Why? Because everything and everyone in that situation is unclean. It's like washing your hands with a dirty rag. It just makes them dirtier and it smears it all around. But when through faith 
God touches the unclean thing. This is what happens. From this time forward, I will bless you. It is clean. It's clean. Jesus' ministry was one of contagious cleanliness, contagious holiness. If Jesus reached out his hand and touched a leprous face, this did not make him unclean. Rather, it made the leper clean. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be what? Clean. Clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Consider what this contagious cleanliness of Christ means for the church. We are the man, this, this assembly, this body of believers, look around you. We are the manifestation of Jesus' contagious, contagious righteousness of a ministry. It spread. His righteousness spread. Before he came, uncleanliness corrupted the righteous. After he came, his righteousness corrupts uncleanliness. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and it starts small, and it grows, and it will continue to do so until kingdom come will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet we as individuals are often not very correctable. We cling to our disease. We sin and then we get upset when the Word of God or somebody bearing the Word of God points that sin out to us. Why? Why? It would be like the leper being upset about being healed from leprosy. What are we afraid of? What are you afraid of by being corrected by the Word of God? What are you afraid of when it comes to the righteousness of Christ spreading all over your soul? Unstoppable. It doesn't make any... Are we afraid of, of the righteousness of Christ cutting out the stinking, rotten, sin-corrupted, unclean portions of us that still remain? Is that what we're afraid of? Why? And as a church, why would we play not to lose? Why would we be so insecure that we would try to look like the world or coax the world in here by gimmicks and whatever? Why? Why would we do that? The incorruption is losing ground every single day. And we don't want to join the incorruption. We have put upon the incorruptible. The righteousness of Christ has taken hold in our hearts and in this place. And why would we want to bring, why would we want to put that back in reverse? That makes no sense whatsoever. That world, that corruptible world, every day is losing ground and it will join us. They will join us. We 
When Jesus commissioned Peter as the foundation of the church, and he said to him in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. We often interpret this verse incorrectly, like the forces of hell are after us and they're at our gates, and we can withstand the forces of hell because the gates, the, the, the hell won't prevail against us. It's exactly 100% wrong. Where is the army of the Lord that Jesus is describing? They're not at our gates. We're at theirs. We are laying siege to them. To the world, and we are armed with the righteousness of Christ, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are not losing. Can I get a witness? We are not losing. The the world, the culture would have you to believe that it's time to become insulated and worried. We are not losing. We're not. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The seed was planted, the mustard seed was planted with Christ, resurrecting from the grave. The incorruptible, not going to be corrupted, and it's spreading like wildfire, and it's going to continue to do so until Jesus comes back. Kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sorry if I'm shattering your paradigm, but that's Scripture. That's what the Bible says. Do not be ashamed of your king. And the crowning example of this righteousness overcoming corruption took place at the cross of Christ. All the healing and stuff he did, those were microcosms. The big, effective moment was Jesus on the cross. Remember that when he was nailed to the cross, to the tree, this meant that he died under the curse of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Listen to the full context from Deuteronomy chapter 21. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, which Jesus didn't, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So in his death, Jesus was considered a cursed man. Yet we call Good Friday good because everlasting blessing and joy and eternal life arise from this cursed one. Jesus was lifted up like the bronze serpent, like it says in John chapter 3. And everyone who looked upon faith, upon the impaled serpent, upon this cursed one, was healed of the serpent's venom. So also everyone who looks upon the poisoned cross of Christ with faith leaves all of their poison there. What a judo move that Jesus is pulling here. What, a, what righteous laughter Jesus has in the face of evil. 
And not only that, but when he died, his cursed dead body became unclean as well. He died under the curse of God so that he might provide propitiation for our sins. And this act of sacrifice culminated in his dead and unclean body hanging under an angry sky, threatening to contaminate the land, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this is why the Jews wanted to break his legs so that his unclean body could be removed before it could defile their holy day. The Jews, therefore, John chapter 19, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day. They asked Pilate to break their legs that they might be taken away. And then in verse, that was verse 31, and then verse 34, they figured out, well, you think he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. He's already dead. And they didn't believe it. So one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And then John says something very interesting. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. John makes it plain in this verse. He wanted us to know that blood and water came out of Jesus' body. Why? So that you might what? Believe. That you might have faith like that woman who was unclean. So that you, like an unclean woman or a leper or an apathetic Jew who only built 10% of the temple, so that you, like them, would have faith and be cleansed from unrighteousness. Consider what I'm saying. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, how many times have you heard that said? If you're a church-going person, probably a thousand, maybe a million times. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. We are washed by this blood and water. This means that our cleansing comes from the blood of a dead, cursed, unclean man. And it's by his uncleanliness, Judah move, that we are made clean. Clean. Washed. His curse is our blessing. His defilement is our washing. Consider these New Testament teachings on the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 19, or excuse me, chapter 9, verses 13 through 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer... Sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A purged conscience is the work of Jesus' blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We are sanctified because we are sprinkled with the unclean blood of Jesus. First John 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, 
cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The blood of an unclean dead man cleanses. Not only does it cleanse, but it cleanses from all sin, all unrighteousness. We are washed in an unclean thing, and this is our cleansing. How does that work? The only reason this can work is through the process of the word I mentioned earlier, which Scripture calls propitiation. There's your $10 theological term for the day, propitiation. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, died under the wrath of God, this means that the uncleanliness of His death was not his own uncleanliness, but rather the uncleanliness contributed by you and by me and by half-hearted second temple building neglecting Jews. The reason your sin diseases are left behind when you touch him is because he obeyed his father and identified with you completely. This means your sin came to rest on Him. He took your sin, you left it all there as a Christian, and then His righteousness became yours. And you took all the righteousness He had with you. 2 Corinthians, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the what? Righteousness of God. The whole thing. What a scandalous exchange. Beautiful. A beautiful exchange, but scandalous. You can't make this stuff up. Like, what kind of God? Examine the other gods from the other religions. And you'll find jealousy and narcissism and, and, and unrighteous anger and lust. Not our God. Our God takes all of that from us, pays the penalty for that, and then gives us back his righteousness. So that he, when we come to be judged by him, he says, perfect. Perfect. Pastor Matt reminded me and sent me a quick clip from my favorite living preacher from across the pond. His name's Alistair Begg. He's Scottish. Sometimes I just gets so enamored by his accent, I just lose track of what he's trying to say. But He's a very good preacher. He said this in that clip, If you were to die tonight and find yourself standing at the gates of the celestial city, being asked the question, why should you be let in? If your answer would start with the first person pronoun, I, then your answer would most assuredly be wrong. I am a good person. I went to church. I give to orphans. I, 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 wrong answer. It's the wrong answer. If you are a Christian, the answer is because He 
Because he cleansed me. Because he saved me. Because he died for me. Because he promised me eternal life with him. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Now, I, we, our elders, we don't believe in emotionally manipulating people into spiritual decisions at this church. It's not that having emotions towards the Lord is a bad thing, it's a good thing, but we don't believe that a person can be emotionally manipulated into salvation, quite frankly, because it just can't be done. Either God saves you or you're not saved. Either He justifies you and in faith you reach out like the woman and touch his garment and he makes you clean in faith or you are not clean, you are not saved. And I can't manipulate you into doing that. Most of the time our sermons do not end with passionate, emotional pleas for sinners to come home. But hear my words today. If you have not come to Christ, if you have not, like that woman, said, I am unclean and I must touch him, Children and teenagers, I'm not talking about your parents if they've come to Christ. Parents, I'm not talking about if your children or your brother or your coworker has come to Christ. I'm not talking about your church attendance or your giving patterns or even your Bible study habits. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. If you have not believed upon the work of Jesus to save you, then hear me with an unclean world behind you, with an unclean hell below you, with an unclean heart within you. Come. Come to the fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. Come. Hear my words and come. Like the unclean woman, like the leper, like the apathetic exiles returning to the Lord, like many of the people sitting around you today, come in faith and touch Him. And if you do, then you will come away everlastingly and eternally clean and pure. Won't you please come to him? Won't you believe that he can make you clean and pure? From one starving beggar to another one, I have found bread. And this is where you can get it. This is where you get clean. This is where the guilt and the shame And all the things that come with sin are washed away in Christ. And if you do, and if you will, hear these words of the Lord through the prophet Haggai, because they are for you. From this day forward, I will bless you. From this day forward, I will bless you. Let's pray.